Welcome Northeast Conference fans to our latest NEC Overtime podcast. I'm Alexis Watson, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Advisor for the NEC. And today I'm joined by Farah, Rebecca, Destiny, and Tristan for our first Black History Month discussion series, Celebrating Black Women in Sports. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me. Why don't we go around and I'll have you guys introduce yourself. Why don't we start with Rebecca? Hi, my name is Rebecca Lee. I go to Mount St. Mary's University. I am a senior here, and my sport is basketball. Hi, my name is Destiny Johnson. I go to Central Connecticut State University. I am a junior. I participate in the sport of swimming. Hi, uh, my name is Tristan Cottrell. Uh, I'm from St. Francis College. I'm on the women's soccer team, and I'm a sophomore. Hi, my name is Farah Douglas. Um, I'm from Mount St. Mary's. I am the um, women's head coach for rugby. Well, thank you guys again for being with me. I'm so excited uh, to get us all together and have this awesome discussion. So first, I thought it would be good for us to go around and just to start off by celebrating Black women. I thought we could each share um, a Black woman, either in or out of sport, that we really look up to. So I'll start with Tristan. So for me, I have two, but um, they're both actually out of sport but the first one would be my mom. And the second one is a civil rights activist and that would be Ruby Bridges. Um, I have two as well. One that comes to mind obviously is Simone Manuel. She is so inspirational to me. She opened my eyes to endless possibilities. Um, she's just amazing overall in everything that she does um, to give back, to let her voice be heard with her platform. And then my other person that I look up to is Tracy Ellis Ross. She's just an amazing actress, activist, everything. She's, I just love how carefree she is to be herself and silly and just following her on social media. I love it. So, yeah. I think one for me would be Michelle Obama, just seeing her throughout the eight years, um, with her husband being the president, all the things she had to go through and all the things um, that she would most of the time save face and not stoop down to people um, who would attack her. And I really look up to her for that. I'm gonna ditto Rebecca. I think Michelle Obama is, she's just dignified beauty, right? Um, just how she carries herself. For me, I think I have, um, two in sport and then one that's not in sports. So my one that would not be in sports would be Nella Larson. Um, she's a black Harlem Renaissance writer, uh, kind of not super well known, but kind of is. Um, she kind of like wrote a lot about the struggle with identity and her characters are very much like herself of mixed heritage. Uh, she was born of Afro Danish descent, so didn't really fit into Harlem and the sort of like New Negro moment that movement that was happening then and kind of was out of place in like Danish communities as well. So she was a really interesting figure for me and her writing is amazing. Um, not a lot of work, but very, very important piece things to read. So I, I highly recommend it. Um, my sport people would be probably Wilma Rudolph, who's an Olympic sprinter. Um, long before I came to rugby, I was a track and field athlete. So I got to give 
I got to give my girl some peeps there. And then my other one is actually um, a friend and teammate of mine from the U.S. women's national team. Um, I'm a former U.S. player in rugby for 15s and Phaedra Knight would be one of my like living inspirations. Um, we played together for a really long time, became friends, but you talk about having power and strength and intellect to give yourself a voice. And she has never been afraid to advocate for herself, her community and other women of color. And she just recently took over the position as a CEO or president of the Women in Sports Foundation. So like I'm giving super kudos to her because she's out there and she's doing it and being visible for all of us. I think for me, someone who I really look up to in sport and I should probably tell her this more because I feel like she might watch this and be like, oh, I never knew this. Um, but the, the head women's basketball coach at SFU, Coach Whittington, um, Rebecca, I don't know if you've been able to like come in contact with her and have any conversations with her, um, but Coach Whittington is she's just so awesome like I've gotten to work with her on a few NEC initiatives and I'm always just so kind of like taken back by how much she like cares for people you know especially black women um and she just always goes out of her way to like uplift people and I just really hope that you know as I get more into my sport career that I can make people feel the way that coach Whittington makes me feel. Cause every time I talk with her, I just leave the conversation feeling so good. Um, or at least like so good or a call to action wanting to do more. So um, I think coach Whittington is, is someone that I really look up to in the sports world. I want to keep that energy going. And I wanted us all to reflect on a quote from Malcolm X. Um, and I kind of debated about this quote because I, I do want this conversation to be positive. Um, but I think that this quote also shows why we need to have conversations like this and why we need to dedicate special time to uplifting black women. Um, so back in 1962, Malcolm X said, the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman the most neglected person in America is the black woman. And statistically, in a lot of ways, we still see that today. Given that in a lot of spaces, black women can sometimes be left behind, I think it's really important for us to have these conversations now and show that like, no, we're here and we're gonna celebrate ourselves. If you guys aren't gonna do it, we're gonna do it, right? So I think, um, why don't we take a second and kind of reflect on that and what that quote means to you and how we can move forward from that space. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll start. Uh, it's a really interesting quote for me because I, I, I'll be honest, I probably haven't given much thought <clears throat> it really. Um, but I think when you kind of think about national identity, right? And black power movements, not like sort of like generalizing all of them. Often any type of nation talk tends to be in really masculine terms. And if you go back to like, say the Harlem Renaissance, 
where you had black power movements starting to develop, moving up into the civil rights and the 60s and the 70s, often the way that black power was spoken about was about protecting the motherland. So Africa is this feminized construct and very much, for lack of a better way to say it, it was a, a bit of a who's got something bigger in their pants than the other person in terms of like, you know, a, a bit of a pissing war, if you will. So nation talk has always been about protecting this feminine version of a nation or a statehood or your identity. So it's really interesting that we are left behind, but when men talk about the community, it's about protecting this like feminine version of the community. Um, and then you look at, you know, say the Black Panther Party, not very, in the beginning, not very welcoming, welcoming to the like female voice in terms of having a, a voice of power. And I think across the board, that tends to be true with a lot of like national movements where you're talking about power and identity. Um, it's always which man can out talk the other man who's got the bigger penis. That's nation talk. It's very, very, it's very, very manly, like chest bump, hear me. Um, so it, it, it's interesting. We're left behind, but we're what they seek to protect. And then when you look at social constructs around black women, we're over-sexualized, um, you know, fa fetishized, on, on both sides, really. Um, so it's it's complicated because even in our like our daily, like just kind of like like social culture, you talk about music, music videos, and we're not even talking about now, even if you go back to the 80s and the 90s when things were a little bit more, I'm older than all of you guys, a little bit more subtle, it's not so subtle. And we are hypersexualized in videos on screen and that hasn't that hasn't changed the same images that i was looking at as a teenager growing up are the same things that teenagers now are looking at there's just a little bit more skin but like the the image and what it represents is is still there you know and then you talk about we're over sexualized at the same time we are taught to think of ourselves as pieces as this puzzle and every piece is something that we should be changing whether it's get some fade fade cream let's lighten your skin um how many commercials do you see around buying a flat iron or a brazilian treatment where you can straighten your hair or outright relaxers i mean the stories that i could tell you about just myself growing up and the things that i have done to my hair and the journey for me just trying to like live in this and be comfortable with it, you know, and women in general are very much conditioned to think of ourselves as pieces, as compartments that can be changed, whether it's increase your breast size, get a bigger butt, suck out some fat. And I think that within that context, black women are very much conditioned to want to change everything about us to as aspire to this very idealized, image of beauty that is really Caucasian. No, I, I like how bluntly that was put. I really liked everything you said. And I 
want to piggyback off the word you said you use complicated. Uh, I think it is very complicated, especially when you uh, say the phrase, uh, we're such strong black women. And then so everybody puts in their mind, oh, they're strong. They don't need anything. They don't need us. They don't need any help. They don't need any representation. So now we're, yes, we are strong, but that can get very tiresome, very fast. So we're putting everything on our back and, you know, we're, you know, when they target our black men and then we're left up to pick up the pieces of the family or left up to pick up the pieces of um, fighting for civil rights. And, and most often not in history, you know, you said it was like a pissing contest. We were the words behind what they said, but obviously we wouldn't, we wouldn't get any of the credit for it. So I think it, it definitely is complicated. I agree for sure with everything that was said. And the part within Malcolm X's quote that resonated with me was when he said that the most neglected or the most unprotected person in America is the black woman. And when I think of unprotected, I think of automatically Breonna Taylor, the most recent um, situation of police brutality um, where justice was not served once again. I attended actually a march in the summer and um, when they shouted, say her name, Breonna Taylor, that just hit home because it was like, that could have been me she was literally in her house minding her business. And is just the fact that it was so unprotected and just her as a person, I don't, it's just, it just really hurts to talk about it because it's just, it just really hits home. But I just feel like her situation is a prime example of not being protected, not being, um, not her name not being said enough so that people know her story and who she was because of how she was killed, honestly, by police, police brutality. So it just really hurts to talk about that situation and just think of how as black women were unprotected or not, like you said, when men are brought into the picture, they're just, they overpower it or um, we just don't get the recognition we deserve, no matter if we're dead or alive. And as sad as that sounds, it just hurts to even talk about it because she was innocent. They were both innocent. And it just hurts to talk about because as a woman, you'd think that her name would be said more or that more awareness would be brought to her situation. And it wasn't. And it's just sad to speak of. And that's why that quote hits home for me because that situation was so prominent. It was like on social media, it was everywhere. So to see that it just hurt. It really did. But yeah, that's something that resonated with me. I think that one thing that I, I think about in Destiny, when you um, talked about going, when you referenced going to a march over the summer, it reminded me of a, a speech that I heard at a march um, over the summer as well. Um, and it was a Black woman talking about how we cannot forget Breonna Taylor and how we need to keep her name going because we do tend to leave behind black women. And when you think about it, all of the movements that we've had over the course of our history as a country, whether it was women's suffrage or 
the civil rights movement or the you know pride and fighting for LGBTQ plus rights. Um, and now we're seeing you know this Black Lives Matter movement again. Black women have been at the forefront of all of that. And still we see, even though black women were at the forefront of women's suffrage, they were the one of the last groups of people to get their right to vote. Black women were at the forefront of LGBTQ activism. And we still see that black trans women are by far the most affected by violence in the community. Um, so we're just, we're seeing that like, we're still being left behind, even though we are so quick to take the charge and try to help other people and fight for other people's rights. Um, and it, it's tiring. And I think Tristan, when you and I talked one-on-one, -on -one, you made a really great point and Rebecca, you kind of referenced it today too. Um, talking about the resilience of black women, um, and Tristan, when you and I were talking about black girl magic and what that kind of means, um, the interesting perspective of like, yes, we are resilient and yes, that is so awesome. And yes, let's toot our horn as black women, but also we can't be this strong all the time, right? Like we need a break sometimes. I disagree with what you were saying and as far as us always being at the forefront, us always being there quick, fast, in a hurry to support, to advocate, to fight for our, our brothers that are being um, affected by police brutality, I think that who's gonna show up for us? Who's gonna be there for us? Who's gonna um, be quick, fast, in a hurry to support us? Well, you know who's gonna do the same for us? We're gonna do it for each other. We're gonna exactly. have each other's backs through thick and thin. You're always gonna have your sister, your black girl, everything. It's always gonna be there. And you need to remember that you don't need anybody else. You also have yourself who is a beautiful black woman who's intelligent and is doing great things. Remember that you don't look in the mirror, tell yourself you're doing it completely. You don't need anybody else, but you know what? It would be nice to take a breather <laughs> and to not have to do it all the time, but you know, you always think of the fact that you have the strength of 10 men, but think of it as that you only need the strength of one woman because it is more than you think. That support to come from somewhere outside of like our community of black women, I think requires the same type of fundamental shift that we need to happen in the world around race relations, right? Um, you know, I'm listening to you guys talk about like all these like recent things and the names of men who have died are the names that ring loudest, clearest with the most reaction and very silently, very quietly are the women who have, you know, faced that same death. But it's, but there's, but I'm not surprised. Go all, who hasn't heard of Emmett Till? We all know who Emmett Till is, right? Everyone's heard that story. How many of our friends know about the four little girls that died in a church bombing? Birmingham, right? So historically, the black community has never put 
the muscle behind the importance of upholding women, which is really, I kind of nerd out around like, I'm very much like interested in like kind of like nation, nationalism, identity and things like that. And it's really interesting when you look at the black community and the way that men talk about community and being black and black power and the black nation, because it is really about like this ability to protect the feminine, our women, our families, the motherland. And then when you look at like the same thing, like <laughs> that, that like sort of conflict between black national talk and like white national talk, and I'm definitely overgeneralizing, it's the same thing. <clears throat> like even their talk is, is, is about women. And the difference is they like, they're women within like in that white nation talk, they're a bit, I mean, it's problematic but they're idolized in an entirely different way than we are. And they will galvanize behind that. Emmett Till was brutally murdered to protect the white woman. Lynching, when you look at like the concept of lynching, black men on a tree and what did they do? They hung them and then they mutilated their genitals very much about taking away masculinity and protecting this idolized concept of femininity in a way that the black community does not address. And it's, and, and that's what I say, like, it's really, it's really complicated because I don't think that they don't not care. I just don't know that as a community that we're at a place where that like, that we can have those open conversations where you can look at your brother and say, you don't actually have my back. You're not doing enough. This is just about you. Because the minute you, the minute we question that, what's gonna come back? Uh, you're an angry black woman. You don't, we're not giving you enough. And then you're gonna get, the George Floyd stories, the what happens when I get pulled over and cops. Well, you know what? Yes, I, I'm gonna acknowledge that that happens to black men and they get racially profiled, but I have been pulled over and I have had a cop ask me without ever asking for identification if I had a criminal record in the state of Virginia. So the same constant threat of like annihilation that black men face, black women face it every day. And it's even more detrimental and more dangerous because no one believes that we're under threat. No one believes that we're under attack because it's always about black men. And because we don't speak the names of all of the women who have faced violence, how do we ever, how do we change it? How do we become protected? How do we stay? How do we become unneglected? How do we become important? And we don't need to be more important than the black man, but we need to share the platform because change isn't gonna happen unless we can collaborate together. And it's really hard to collaborate when their foot is on your neck while they're screaming, help me. And that's kind of how I feel.
And I think the next thing that I'd like to ask you guys, um, given this conversation, is what do you want people to know about or how can people be better allies to Black women? And part of me hesitates to ask that question because like, go out and read a book and like, but since we're all here, what can we tell people listening who want to be more educated um, on how they can better help Black women, better celebrate Black women? Um, I'll go first on this one, if that's okay. But um, it's honestly just the basic things. Like, we don't need to sit here and hear that we're articulate. We don't need to sit here and hear that you're pretty for a Black girl. We don't need to sit here and ask you if this is our real hair. Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, you know, just don't ask the questions that you know are gonna sit there and light a fire under us to sit there and get the reaction of an angry black woman. Um, it's, it's honestly very, like, it's that simple. Like I've experienced a lot of um, questions like with my hair, like my hair is very curly, it's very big. Um, Actually, when my hair is straightened, it comes down to the here. And I always get the same question of, is that your real hair? Oh my gosh, can I touch it? No, <laughs> no, you cannot. And second, yes, it is my real hair, but I don't have to sit there and tell you that. Whether I bought it or not, it's still my hair. I paid for it. For allyship, I wanted to touch on uh, when you're listening to our stories and if you ask us something, cause you generally want to know, I know some, um, white people, they are like, they, they're like, Oh, can I ask you something? And, and you're like, Oh, okay. What is it? And then they, they ask you and, you know, I try to have a lot of patience with people, but if I'm telling you something, really listen to what I'm saying. Don't, don't ask me something. And then like, Oh, I, I feel accomplished. I did my diversity thing for the day. Oh, I'm done. Yay, go me. Uh, listen to us and actually use that information to better and, and empower us and then go spread it. Go, when you see something happening that isn't okay, like someone is you know, being racist or even if it's in your, within your own home and you know, your family member is saying something, you're like, have the courage to be like, get uncomfortable and say, hey, that's not okay. Let's not do that. You know, I'm not going to point you out for saying that. I'm just going to stop you so that it ends here. And when we leave, you know, we make the world somewhat of a more tolerable place. Rebecca, I really like what you said when you brought up the fact that sometimes um, people will come up to you or white people specifically just asking a question or just having to give an answer or not having to, but just willingly giving an answer. But I also want to touch on that and just um, emphasize that when I'm approached with a situation like that, I don't want it to be as if I'm the spokesperson for the whole black community. I, um, what I'm telling you is either my experience or what I believe my opinion on whatever situation we may be talking about. But I also think it's important for whatever question they may be asking to be from the heart or out of genuine curiosity or not to, um, like you said, just have it be their one task of the day of, oh, I did something, I made a change, I learned something new and it's done there. No, there's still more work to be done. There's still more to be learned. Even myself, there's still more to be learned and I'm a black woman. So I just feel that um, 
with conversations like that with people that don't look like me or who are genuine, genuinely curious, I feel that it's important for them to know that whatever I say is coming from me and only me and someone else who might look like me won't agree with that. And that's okay. But I just want other people to understand that we all don't think the same way on certain topics, which is huge. And I've definitely seen that with political things that have come out or different headlines that I've seen, um, just things of that sort. But I just feel that a lot of people or a lot of white people specifically think that, like I said, we think the same or the way certain topics are approached um, regarding our community or our people are all agreed upon, which it's not for sure. I really wanted to put out that I really agree with um, you know, that it does get tiring. But I also wanted to add it about the fact of how like everybody's gonna have a different opinion. And this is actually more towards um, just like the black community is that like, there is a lot of talk about the fact that like, there are different shades of black, but we're all black and we all need to be seen as that like, yes, you know what, she may be fairer than me, but she's still black because I get all the time that um, people assume that my mom is half white and my dad is black. And both my parents are actually black, <laughs> um, but I did have friends growing up that were darker than me and that would sit there and make the assumption that, you know, like I wasn't black and this kind of thing. And I think it's important also just for like us as black women and just black people in general to understand that like, just because you're different shades, we still need to support each other in that and don't ask those questions that like a white person would ask because then it just makes it feel even more like unsupported and like that you don't actually know like what's going on type of thing. I think for me, I'd like, the word ally and allyship, it, it's like, it's overdone really. Like, you know, something terrible happens and then the white community gets all up in arms. <gasps> How did I not know this was happening? Oh my God, this is so awful. The world is terrible. How can I be an ally for you? That's like, it's like skinny pants. Oh, it's in style this season? Cool, I'm gonna buy a pair. Like another black person died? Where is my two black friends? I gotta be an ally for them. Be an advocate, take responsibility for your ignorance and understand your privilege, educate yourself and educate yourself by going out and yep, it's cliche, read the books, they're there. Because if you read the books, you probably won't have to ask as many stupid questions, but you'll still have to ask some stupid questions and we're okay with that. But we're only gonna be okay with it if you actually go out and do some work to educate what you don't know and then work to be supportive. And that means get outside of your comfort zone. It's not okay to be like, but I support black people and black women because I have a black friend. I grew up with someone in my neighborhood. No, that's not enough. That's not even, that's not even close to being an ally. That's like, oh, I live down the street from a black family. And then I think <laughs> within the black community itself, it's really complicated when you talk about colorism. Um, I am mixed um, and I have sort of like lived it on both sides. Um, I was raised by my single white mom. Uh, when my brother was born, you would not have known that he was mixed. Um, he was, oh, that child was pale. 
And it's always a battle between the two of us during the summertime, like who's gonna get darker, I win. Um, but so it was like growing up with white, my, my mom's white family where my grandparent, my grand, you guys are too young to know Archie Bunker. Um, Google it. Cause then you guys will understand when we get off this, but he was literally like Archie Bunker, like this, like super loud, kind of like angry with the black community. Bill Cosby made more money than he did. And my dad was black and wasn't a part of our life and had, you know, and he and my mom had separated. So it was this like really weird kind of complicated thing that I didn't realize what was happening when I was growing up. And then I, you know, ha would have friends that would be like, did you know your mom is white? Um, yeah, but I didn't, at the time it did, like, it just, it went, it like went in and it went out because I didn't understand race. I didn't understand color. And then I got to college and then I was like, oh, we had so many crazy things that happened on campus. And I think that within the black community, we are so conditioned without realizing it around white ideals, in particular around beauty. So you go back to how black women are treated. So it very it's very natural for someone to idolize myself for you, Tristan, because of the lightness of our skin, right? You go back to get a fade cream, lighten your dark spots. But, but that's the reality of it, right? Is like, you know, how long did it take for us to see black baby dolls, black Barbies in the store that were actually black? right? Or shades of black, you know? So it's always, it, it's always been this kind of like undercurrent that you want to try to be, you know, as white as you can. Oh, hold on. So it's, um, if you're yellow, you're mellow. If you're brown, you're down. If you're black, get back. It was some kind of crazy phrase like that about, and that's sort of like, I think, you know, it, kind of encompasses what happens in the black community around shades of color, especially when it's women. Is the lighter your skin is, the less kinky your curls are, all of a sudden you become that more idolized, that much more fetishized because you become closer on the scale of like what's supposed to be like beautiful, which is in society in general is identified and defined by white women. You know, so it's like this, this moment where you're like, reflect, like we have shades of color and they are all unbelievably beautiful with things that make them unique. Cause there is no essentialized experience period in any culture, any ethnicity, like, I mean, curls themselves are different. Skin colors are going to be different. The way I... I speak is going to be different than someone that grew up right next to, to my house. Like I'm from Massachusetts. I don't, I do not have a Massachusetts accent. Thank God. My brother does. My mom does. Right. Like, so there are all these like little nuanced things about how we exist and perform our identity in the world that are very unique to who we are. And so I think people just really, really desperately want to essentialize things because it's a lot easier for us if it's 
black or white. And I don't mean that like racially, just like A or B. If not that, then this. Because if we live in binaries, it's so much simpler because it does not require effort. It doesn't require thought. It's like, oh, well, it's not this. So then it's this. And people go about their business. But the minute you get into that gray area where things start to overlap and you can't easily define things, people get all kinds of crazy, all kinds of crazy. And a lot of the stuff that you are talking about, Tristan, like I identify with all of it. When I was a little kid, well, no, high school, and I would go to visit my grandmother and they were Baptists in the South, North Carolina. She forever was determined to get me set up with the pastor's son. And she would always tell me, I want you to meet the pastor's son because you need to marry him because you're light-skinned and you have good hair. Oh my God. And I don't think that I've, I, I probably wasn't until like maybe my junior or senior year of college where like the power and what that meant and like what I sort of like took into myself in terms of how I went about thinking about how was I going to be beautiful in the world, how that affected it. So to, I mean, it's, I feel like I keep calling everything like complicated and I'm all over the place. But I feel like when you talk about black women, like that's it. Like we want to empower ourselves, like you said, using terms like black girl magic, but then that's problematic too, because, you know, yeah. Okay. We're, we're strong women. And some of us do suffer in silence, but a lot of women are strong women who suffer in silence, you know, but the thing I think that's complicated about black girl magic is like this idea that like, Black women are superhumans, so they can carry it all. They can take the burden of the Black community on their shoulders and they don't need support because they just, they got it like that. And that's, can stunt our growth. Um, and it's, it, it's quite suffocating. And rather than empower us to go out and do great things, I think it silences us in a very, very profound way. I think I also wanna add just to the colorism discussion is that it definitely negatively impacts both sides, but I think also being lighter complected, I have to constantly remind myself that I have a certain level of privilege that I know my darker, complected like fellow black women do not have um you know I still turn on the C the tv and I do not see enough dark-skinned women um when I look at magazines I do not see enough 4c hair um and so I I think there are things that you know talking about I, I know you hate this word Vera but allyship um I don't hate it. <laughs> Thinking about what I can do to make sure that like, even as I am a black woman, I still need to be an ally to black women who are different than me. Um, because there are a lot of ways that, that I have, you know, privilege that not all black women have. Um, and I think lastly, just going off of the, um, the activism part, it, it is overdone but the problem is, as overdone as it is, it's 
so rarely done right. You know, I think one of the most annoying things is, you know, having people, and I hate to do this, but it, it's usually white women who say like, oh, I'm an ally. Like I'm doing all this educating myself, da, 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 da. And something will happen. Like maybe we're in a meeting or maybe, you know, at lunch or something. And someone says something crazy. And it's like, this is your time. Like, this is your time to be an ally. Like say something. Mm-hmm. And then they don't. And then I, you know, I have to say that was really inappropriate. And then we leave the meeting or the lunch and they're like, oh my, you're so brave. You're so brave. Thank you so much for saying that. You know, it's like, where were you ally? Like what happened? Because before it was like, you, you know, we were going to fight. We were in this together. Woo. You know, what happened? So it's like, when, at least when I talk about allyship, I hope that people understand that if that's really what you're going to do, it comes with sacrifice and it comes with putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. Um, And it comes with, you know, maybe having to tell your grandma, don't say that granny, like, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's not fun. Um, And there's risk with it. So any other thoughts? Like takeaways for me, I think that I'd like people to acknowledge, I think is that there's intersectionality with black women because we exist in the space of not a single minority. For some of us, it's double. And for some of us, it's more than that because you know, you're talking about our gender race and ethnicity and for some black women um you know gender in a different sense and then you talk about um sexuality so there's a lot of things that are intersecting um that complicate our identity and there are many areas within our identity that we can feel isolated in our experience as a black woman and that people have to acknowledge that that is very much a part of who each of us individually are. And that's why there is no essentialized experience. And we've got to make sure that when we advocate and support from outside of the community and within the community that we're making sure that we support those things. And I think it's important to understand the difference between equality and equity. That, you know, if we're, you know, that it's about if we want everyone to come to some type of level playing field, then we have to understand it, acknowledge the privilege that we've been given and understand that where I exist and what I may have access to means, you know, the stepping stone that I may have might be smaller than the partner person sitting next to me because their privilege is a lot less. And I have to be okay with that. If I'm buying into, we want everyone to have access to the same things. Because equality doesn't mean that we're all going to have the same access. It means that what I have, what you have, and what they have is all going to be the same. But if our privilege provides us certain resources that each one of us don't have access to, equality doesn't level out the playing field. Well, Rebecca, Tristan, Destiny, Farah, thank you guys so much for joining me and participating in our NEC Conversations for Black History Month. I'm Alexis Watson, and this has been NEC Now. Thank you.